and welcome to the first ever edition of the Fiorella Files. I'm your hostess, Fiorella Nash, sometimes known by my nom de plume, Fiorella de Maria. I'm a writer of crime fiction and historical novels and an incorrigible bibliophile. It's wonderful to be making a programme on pretty much my favourite subject, books. On my show, I will be introducing you to books, classic and contemporary, that you must read, that you should enjoy reading, or that you should not touch with an 11-foot barge pole. Once a month, I'll also be doing my special edition children's book show involving younger reviewers talking about and sharing their favourite books. I thought it was apt to start this first episode of my first ever show with the book that has had the greatest influence over my life, apart possibly from the Bible and maybe the Catechism. If you think about it, we all have a book in our life that has really changed the way we think. Sometimes quite a few books, but there's usually one really special one. And for me, that's Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. If you have never read this book, or if you never get the chance to read another book before you die, I beg you to read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian Jewish doctor, a Viennese doctor in fact, which should put you in mind of Freud. And Frankl has a lot to say about Freud in his works. He was also a psychiatrist. Frankl was quite successful and well-known as a doctor when he was first arrested and sent to Auschwitz. This is a man who lost everything. His pregnant wife, his parents, his brother, all perished during the Holocaust, and he himself endured years of horrific suffering. But he also witnessed a great deal of suffering. So if anyone has a right to talk candidly and fervently about suffering and the meaning of suffering in the world, it's surely Viktor Frankl. The book is split into two parts. The first is Frankl's memoir of his time in Auschwitz, and in many ways it's the most powerful part of the book. He details his experiences in Auschwitz, the people he met, not just other prisoners, but also guards and SS officers. He gives extraordinary insights into what it is like for thousands of innocent people from all over Europe to find themselves in the living hell of the concentration camp system. The second half of the book looks much more at Frankl's theory of logotherapy. As a psychiatrist, Frankl radically departed from Freud in his understanding of human behaviour. In Frankl's opinion, Freud was wrong, and he was dangerously wrong. It's not the sex drive that motivates human behaviour, it's the sense of purpose we all need in our lives. He makes the point that in Auschwitz, sexuality was not expressed at all. People were so exhausted and so stressed and so completely focused on the day-to-day -day act of survival that it simply disappeared off the radar. What did make a huge difference and what did quite often make the difference between life and death for a prisoner was a sense of purpose. A belief that their individual life had a specific meaning, that there was a particular mission for them to accomplish in life and it was different for every prisoner. For an aspiring artist, it might be that picture that only they could paint. For an aspiring writer, that book they'd always wanted to pen. Or something more personal, even. That beloved wife and children who, God willing, might also survive. 
In Auschwitz, Frankel writes that it was a capital offence to try to prevent another prisoner from committing suicide. I didn't know that before I read his book. So if you were found restraining a person from hurling himself onto the electrified fence, or if you cut a person down who was trying to hang himself, you too would lose your life. So Frankel's belief was it was imperative to ensure that no prisoner got to that point, where he was so desperate he could see no other way out. So Frankel made it his mission to try to motivate other prisoners to try to find their sense of purpose, to find the meaning of their life, because that was the surest way to survive. Frankel makes a number of very startling observations in both halves of the book uh, that really struck me and made me think quite hard about my own response to suffering and, and the way we all tend to respond, that human response we have to very painful, very difficult situations. He was a firm believer in the freedom to do the right thing. In his view, it's no good blaming your suffering for your own bad behaviour. Frankel very much was of the mind that the last freedom you may have, it may be the only freedom you have at the end, is the freedom to respond well to suffering. To die like a man, with your head held high, walking into the gas chambers, rather than dying screaming and blaspheming and cursing. It may not seem like much of a freedom, but it is freedom. That's quite a teaching in an age of blame culture and victim culture. He was very obviously responding to an earlier generation of psychiatry that blames the parents, blames upbringing, blames trauma for people's behaviour. He was saying, no, you are always responsible for your own behaviour. And a man who'd been through so much suffering surely had a right to make that observation. It's easy enough to say you have a responsibility to do the right thing, you have freedom to behave properly, to behave virtuously. But someone like Frankel, who really walked the walk, really did have a, a right to say that. And it's a very powerful observation and a very challenging one, particularly in today's world. He also points out, which I found quite problematic, I have to say, but also realistic, given the hundreds of thousands of people who were processed, the millions of people who were processed through the concentration camp system, in his words, they weren't all heroes. They weren't all saints. They were very ordinary men and women who were snatched from their homes because they were Jewish, because of their politics, because they were Roma, for all sorts of reasons, and found themselves in this situation. And the overwhelming majority of people did not choose to be there. They were completely innocent victims. They never made a choice. Obviously, some had taken deliberate risks, which they knew might lead them this way, were involved in resistance movements. But mostly they were picked on for reasons that were out of their control. And Frankel makes the point that when so many people from all over Europe, from all different backgrounds, find themselves in that kind of system, a small proportion of them are going to be criminals. And a proportion of them are going to be saints. But the suffering does not in itself make a saint. It's entirely dependent upon how the person responds to suffering. It can also turn a person into a monster. There's a desperately sad moment quite early in the book where Frankel talks about how, in his opinion, the best of us did not return. The truly selfless individuals, the Maximilian Colbys, who gave away their last morsel of bread who always put others before themselves. They were the ones who did not survive. And it's Frankel's 
honesty and forgiveness that is so overwhelming about this book. It's what marks it out from the many, many memoirs to emerge from the Holocaust period. It's the man himself. I've never read a record of suffering so completely devoid of hatred, of bitterness, even of judgment. He writes in this incredibly even-handed, peaceful tone that I just have never come across anywhere else. Like, I can't emphasise that enough. I find it extraordinary that a man who went through so much and lost so much could write so calmly and understandingly about one of the great horrors of the 20th century. And he also wrote this book quite soon after the liberation. This is not a book written 50 years later where he could be a little more philosophical or reflective about what happened. He wrote this book really quite soon after he was liberated from Auschwitz, when the memory of it would still have been extremely raw. So it really left me with a great sense of hope. It is a book of hope. It has some horrific passages in it, and I would warn anyone wishing to read it. This is a book about the Holocaust. There's some violence. There's obviously some very distressing passages. And you know, you ought to be aware of that before you start reading. But fundamentally, it's a book of hope. If you never read another book about the Holocaust, read this one. Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. You can also find speeches of his and interviews that he did uh, on YouTube and other channels. It's well worth getting to know the book and getting to know the man. We will return in just a moment and take a stroll through our library's fiction section next on the Fiorella Files, here on the Crusade Channel. It's not just talk, it's radio. Welcome back to the Fiorella Files. Next, our library tour leads us to the classics and the must-read because Chesterton would read section and this most delightful classic, War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Now, I never imagined I would want to review an early sci-fi novel, but I'm going to explain why I actually think this is a very important novel and a really beautiful book to read. So War of the Worlds is my classic choice for the week. But before we explore this work, I've chosen a passage from War of the Worlds that will serve as a bit of a preview to our review. This is a passage from the opening and it's imagining the way intelligent alien life might look at the people of Earth. And we men, the creatures who inhabit this Earth, must be to them at least as alien and lowly as are the monkeys and lemurs to us. The intellectual side of man already admits that life is an incessant struggle for existence, and it would seem that this too is the belief of the minds upon Mars. Their world is far gone in its cooling, and this world is still crowded with life, but crowded only with what they regard as inferior animals. To carry warfare sunward is, indeed, their only escape from the destruction that generation after generation creeps upon them. And before we judge of them too harshly, 
We must remember what ruthless and utter destruction our own species has wrought, not only on animals, such as the vanished bison and the dodo, but upon its inferior races. The Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were entirely swept out of existence in a war of extermination waged by European immigrants in the space of fifty years. Are we such apostles of mercy as to complain if the Martians warred in the same spirit? That may seem a very harsh passage to have chosen, but it really captures the horrible struggle that goes on in the book. But moving on now to the novel itself. Now, I'm not a sci-fi fan. I never read science fiction, in fact, and I had never read this book before my children started to get interested in science fiction. And I kind of felt I should be reading the books they're reading. So I took a look at War of the Worlds. So this is quite a departure for me. and I read it with great trepidation, expecting to hate it. Now, those of you who don't know H.G. Wells and this late Victorian thriller about an imagined Martian invasion of England, it has been hugely influential and is widely regarded as one of the finest early science fiction works. There are shades of War of the Worlds in all sorts of science fiction stories and films, including one of my least favourite films of all time, Independence Day, where they pinch the idea... I think, for defeating the aliens pretty much directly from H.G. Wells's story. So this is a book that has had a massive impact on the public imagination about alien life and space travel and wars with other alien species. When the story was first written between 1895 and 1897, it was initially serialised in both British and US magazines. There was a great interest in space and the possibility of alien life, but of course a lot less understanding of what alien life might look like. So I find it quite amusing that the whole idea of Martians and life on Mars stems from a linguistic error. This is where you should always be very careful with your translations because the Italian astronomer who first wrote about his observations of Mars wrote that he had found canali on the surface of Mars. These are channels worn into the surface by weather. Unfortunately, canali was mistranslated as canals, not channels, giving the impression that they were made by intelligent life and thus the myth of the Martian was allegedly born. So when you read the book, you just have to accept the fact that scientifically it's completely nonsensical. The great big tripods that appear that are shot through space from Mars in cylinders and all appear quite close to where I live, in fact. Woking, by the way, is a really boring town, but Woking is the centre of the drama of this story. And it's the centre of the drama for quite serious reasons. It's quite close to London. And of course, at the time of writing, London was pretty much the centre of the world. It was the centre of the greatest empire, the largest empire the world had ever seen. It was also where H.G. Wells' friends lived. And apparently he took great pleasure in laying waste to the places where his friends live. Weybridge gets completely destroyed, so does Shepperton. There's even a glancing mention of Guildford, where I live. So it's 
got a comical aspect to it in terms of the places where the Martians actually attack, but it's also got a level of seriousness too. I will admit immediately I could not put it down. As an adventure story, it is extraordinary. I was completely taken in by this battle with creepy reptilian creatures and big metal tripods and heat rays and all the rest. I felt the panic of the narrator. It's, I think, really the greatest of these early novels, these early science fiction novels. What makes it work as a novel is that the narrator is not named and he's not one of the heroes of the action. He is simply a bystander. And that makes him a kind of every man. And there are moments, quite a few moments in the novel, that are genuinely terrifying. My heart would be absolutely in my mouth, wondering how the narrator was going to escape. Um, I was overwhelmed by the horror of some of the deaths, particularly the deaths of characters we get to know a little better in the course of the story. And what's so extraordinary about this book is even though it's Victorian and it's it's very much a Victorian novel, it's high Victorian, height of the British Empire, space exploration turned out very differently to what H.G. Wells imagined in the book, but in other ways it really is chillingly prophetic as a novel. It's been noted that it appears almost to foresee some of the horrors of the soon-to-be 20th century, the use of poison gas, as a weapon of mass extermination, the complete destruction of cities, the deaths of thousands of people, even the horrific descriptions of refugees fleeing London, the streets clogging with panicked people. It's so eerily prophetic of the refugee columns that Europe saw during the Nazi invasion of Belgium and France and other countries, where civilians streamed out of the cities trying to escape the Luftwaffe and were gunned down, trapped helplessly on the roads. It's obviously coincidental, and yet it's impossible as a child of the 20th century not to read those passages and shiver, thinking, did H.G. Wells foresee something of the horrors that were coming at a time when Britain was at peace in Europe and the idea of mass destruction at this sort of level was really quite unthinkable. The passage I read at the beginning makes it quite clear. H.G. Wells was not a very nice man. Like so many of his generation, he was very taken in by eugenics. And though there's a layer of charm about this book, the quaint details of Victorian daily life, the manners, the way the English talk to one another, even in a time of crisis, at times there's almost a homeliness about it. But the message beneath it is very, very dark. Wells talks about, uh, in interviews, talks about how he and his brother discussed what had happened to the indigenous populations where European colonists had turned up and spread the common cold, for example, and other pathogens, the way whole civilizations had been destroyed so quickly. And because of H.G. Wells' own ideology, his treatment of the subject can be quite stark at times. When he asks that question... Do we have any right to expect mercy from a superior race when we showed none to so-called inferior races? He asks that question really without questioning the morality of it, the morality of destroying indigenous peoples, simply as a way of pointing out that the human race can't be hypocrites if Martians come to get them because they've annihilated their own people. 
So there are moments in this novel that are really chilling, and not just because of aliens eating people. It's challenging in a very unsettling way, particularly for Europeans. It's not what I initially thought when I first opened the book, a kind of Victorian flying saucer fight in the sky. So do read the book. Do read the book, read it as a family, but be prepared. It is a roller coaster ride. It's exciting, it's frightening, and it is very, very thought-provoking. So, on to our final book of the Fiorella Files. A contemporary take on a great classic. Now, we all love Jane Austen. The elegance, the empire line gowns, well, Mr Darcy. Let's face it, I think any woman who reads Pride and Prejudice will have expectations about men raised through the roof by the scrumptious Mr Darcy. And understandably, with an author as well-loved as Jane Austen, there have been a slew of fan fiction, particularly surrounding Pride and Prejudice, which is arguably Jane Austen's finest, certainly her most famous novel. Now, some fan fiction, I'm not, I'm not against fan fiction, some fan fiction is absolutely priceless. Some years ago, there was a series over here called Lost in Austen, it was actually one of the funniest and most original takes on Pride and Prejudice I've ever seen. It was about a modern fan of Pride and Prejudice who longs to live in an age of elegance. She can't stand the crudeness and brashness of modern life. She dreams of a Mr Darcy. And one day, through means that are never completely explained, she finds herself walking into the story of Pride and Prejudice, going back in time and finding herself in the home of the Bennett family. And it's hilarious, it's really funny, and it's very, very cleverly written. So I'm not a purist, I'm not against fan fiction and spin-offs. Um, I myself have written a radio play on the life of Sherlock Holmes, for example. A lot of writers do this, and it's usually an act of love. So now we come to Longbourn by Joe Baker. The book was published back in 2013, but I wanted to review it because it's pretty much a prime example of everything that is wrong with contemporary efforts to write historical fiction. Unlike all the prequels and sequels that have been written, the novel has a timeline that runs parallel to the original Pride and Prejudice, but it's told from the point of view of the housemaid, Sarah who gets mentioned very briefly in Pride and Prejudice, and it's very much a below-stairs view of the period. Now, I get the feeling it was at least partly inspired by the 1970s BBC drama Upstairs, Downstairs, which was a kind of precursor to Downton Abbey and you know, posh people's lives seen from the point of view of the servants. It's a wonderful idea for a story because we do, let's face it, have a very twee idea of ye olde England where everyone was terribly polite and ladies curtsied and gentlemen bowed and women wore pretty dresses. But of course, for the overwhelming majority of people at the time, life was pretty tough. If you were poor, life was painful and difficult, sometimes dangerous. So, so I get it. I get completely what Joe Baker was trying to do. She gives a, a gritty, earthy view of what the period was like, but she just goes so overboard. Obviously, the maid washes the dirty linen, 
But there are so many references to bodily fluids, um, because of course, none of us reading this book could possibly have known that people emptied their bladders in Georgian England, and none of us could possibly have worked out that, you know, people opened their bowels or that women menstruated. Did you realise women had menstrual cycles 200 years ago? That's why we had to hear all about it in this book. Lots and lots of descriptions of blood and napkins, which by the way is also historically inaccurate. Sorry, pedant. We see dashing young soldiers in Austen's novels. The army features very, very strongly because, of course, he had the the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, So there were a lot of soldiers about. So, of course, we need to know in this book that life as a soldier was a good deal rougher than we hear about it in Jane Austen's novels. It wasn't all balls and parties. Who would have thought it? The life of a soldier was a bit tough, so we needed to have not one but two floggings in the course of the book, um, but both of them completely unjust, to know that it was a bit tough being a soldier. And as with so many takes on historical novels, it is replete with anachronisms. It's one of my big bugbears, as both a writer and a reader, that so many modern attempts to recreate the past only churn out modern novels with modern characters in period dress. They just don't somehow get into the spirit of the time and they particularly can't get into the mindset. They research the the details on the patterns on the ceramics or they they look at the fashions of the time and they they try to recreate all those little accidentals so carefully and yet they never ever get the psychology right and for me as a writer that's one of the most important things it's making sure that the characters are completely believable when i write a novel set in the past i want readers to feel like they're actually going back in time I want them to believe that they are moving among people who really lived all those years ago. But of course, it's a tall order. One of my favourite novels, in fact, is Hartley's The Go-Between, with that famous, heartbreaking first line, probably the most famous opening sentence in a 20th century novel, the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. And it is a foreign country, it is so different. And the mores are different and the thinking is different and attitudes were different but do you know something they weren't necessarily inferior to ours that that patronizing attitude to the past is unbearable anyway I'm going to stop ranting about that because I could go on I could do about a series of shows about why I don't like contemporary attitudes to the past but it keeps creeping into this novel all the way through the completely anachronistic attitudes. I mean, little Sarah is quite a revolutionary. No one should have to clean other people's dirty laundry. It's a disgrace. And who on earth would have said that at the time? You know, it's it's just it, it's just silly. It's silly. You know, um, she she sounds like a, a Marxist. You know, in in the wrong time span, and. You do get that a lot. I noticed that even in Downton Abbey, that what we'd call over here chippiness. Everyone terribly disgruntled all the time when actually being a housemaid in a comfortable house with nice employers was not the worst deal at the time by a long chalk. It's within living memory in um, 
in the place where I grew up, in the, in the West Country town where I grew up, when I was a child, there were elderly women in particular who had been in domestic service when they were very young, some of them as early as sort of 13, 14 years old. And they felt that they had done well because their fathers were maybe farm labourers. They were getting a position in a house where they got three meals a day and they had a level of security. We've forgotten completely what it was like being in domestic service in those days. So a lot of those attitudes, they, they just don't ring true. And of course, it seeps into the way the characters are portrayed. Some of the characterization is quite interesting. The way Wickham is portrayed is quite believable, I felt. The nasty way he acts, the way he slips between the upstairs and the downstairs and the way he manipulates the rather vulnerable character and very nearly destroys his life, I found that completely convincing. But others just didn't quite work. The author uses that rather well-worn idea that Mary Bennett was in love with Mr Collins or wanted to marry Mr Collins and was thwarted and it's just a little bit pat it's just you know I, I just thought that wasn't really very imaginative and it turns out of course that Mr Bennett had a love child with Mrs Hills I mean you, you think really um where did you get that from and completely predictable as always right at the end of the novel, it sneaks in that Mr. Hill died with his britches down in the arms of his gay lover. It's just, it's so ludicrous. It's completely token, as always. And there's nothing in Jane Austen's novel to suggest that this happened or would have happened. It's just stuck in there to sort of tick a box, as always. So th there's a lot about this, as you can probably <laughs> work out by now, that I didn't like very much. The sad thing is, there were aspects of it that were quite beautifully put together. The author really does her homework in some areas. There, there are just little details like you see them making soap and it's interesting seeing how that happens, how the process goes from this horrible cauldron of nasty smelly fats and things into beautiful little bars of soap. You know, There, there are just details like that where I think, you know, the author really made an effort, but it does not in any way redeem the novel. So I'm afraid my general feeling about this book is don't bother. But it is a pity. It really is a pity because there's a lot about this novel to like and there's an awful lot that could have happened in the novel that could have made it really very, very readable. It's just a pity it falls so short. So maybe give Longbourn a miss. Next week we have the Fiorella Children's File and two of my children will be joining me on the show to review their favourite books. My daughter Francesca will be looking at a very gritty book called Across the Barricades and my son will be looking at a series involving lots of monsters, shall we say. It's been my pleasure to serve you and I hope you'll tune in next week. Don't forget to write to me at fiorella at crusadechannel.com and remember in the words of the glorious G.K. Chesterton literature is a luxury fiction is a necessity goodbye and God bless <laughs>